Bible and Mrs. Glenn and say how honored we are to have him come along and give us this lecture tonight. He's had a very, very busy schedule indeed, and we're delighted that you've able, been able to fit us in. I'm just going to say a few words to give you a little background on Colonel Glenn. It was on the 20th of February, 62, that Colonel Glenn piloted America's first orbital spacecraft, Friendship 7, and won the admiration of the world and the gratitude of the American people. This achievement represented the culmination of tremendous endeavor and the input of high financial and emotional investments. An ex-U.S. Marine, John Glenn has been an aviator for 20 years. He served in two wars and made the first supersonic crossing from Los Angeles to New York in 57. He was born 44 years ago in Cambridge, Ohio, and as might be expected, was very keen on football, basketball, and tennis. He took part in school plays, sang in the church choir, cleaned cars for pocket money, and played the trumpet. <laughs> Not necessarily in that order. <laughs> John joined the Marine Reserve Corps in 43, and in February 44 was shipped in the Pacific, where he earned two DFCs and ten air medals. He became integrated with the regular Marine Corps, was promoted captain in 1945. After two years on North China Patrol, he did some flight instructing, attending various courses, and became a major. Then came Korea, where as an exchange pilot, he flew 90 missions in seven months and earned his third and fourth DFC and eight more air medals. After completing his test pilot course in 54, John was awarded his fifth DFC for his speed record from Los Angeles to New York City. Then in April 59, he was one of seven volunteers chosen from 110 Air Force, Navy, and Marine test pilots to become an astronaut with the NASA Project Mercury Man in Space Program. So began the long, arduous, and intensive preparation for space flight. Exhaustive and rigorous physical and physiological tests and strict personal schedule of study and dieting that had to be undertaken. Then the postponements, ten times over a period of two months. I think perhaps that was more hair-raising than the space flight itself. And finally, the big day, which started for him at 2.20 a.m. on the morning of the 20th of February, 1962. Well, in recognition of uh, his space achievement, John received numerous awards and honors acclaimed from all quarters and a four cent stamp captioned U.S. Man in Space was issued to celebrate his safe landing. Colonel Glenn has two children, a boy and a girl. The former Sunday school teacher enjoys listening to music and once won a lot of money on a TV program for his knowledge of popular songs. <laughs> John Glenn's philosophy seems perfectly summed up in one of his own remarks. Quote, People are afraid of the future of the unknown. If a man faces up to it and takes the dare of the future, he can have some control over his destiny. That's an exciting idea to me, better than waiting with everybody else to see what's going to happen. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me pleasure to introduce to you Thank you very much.
to outline just very briefly on how I would like to uh, go about this, about this this evening, we have a few remarks to begin with about the space program in general, and uh, would like to show some slides of some of the pictures that have been taken on various flights, including my own, up to and including the recent uh, Cooper Conrad flight. I uh, would like to speak for a little while about some of the future programs, the Apollo Lunar Landing Program, and show some slides that uh, give an artist depiction of that, finish off with a little uh, picture of Ed White's space walk, although why we call it a walk, I don't know. It seems to me it's much more of a float than it is a walk, but uh, some pictures of Ed White anyway that were taken just a short film that I think would be interesting to you, particularly those of you that are test pilots in the crowd, and I understand we have probably a fourth to a third of the membership here this evening that are in the are or have been in the test piloting business, so uh, some of you can particularly appreciate these things, I'm sure. And then I get to what I consider the, the major part of the program, and that is to be available to answer questions and discuss our program with you in a mutual exchange here if we can. So if you do have questions as we go through the first part of this, I'd appreciate very much your holding them, and we'll try and... Uh, I won't guarantee I can answer them, but we'll try. And we have a couple of other experts along here this evening, or a couple of experts. I don't consider myself one, but uh, Mr. Gil Owsley is here... Uh, with us from the Paris office of NASA. He's been active in the unmanned space program in particular and is conducting all the international liaison with various countries for NASA in the European area at the present time. And Mr. Walt Panino from NASA headquarters who's familiar with the program from that level. So we have uh, three of us here this evening. Maybe between all three of us we can field some of your questions if they're not too deep. So to start out with just a few remarks about the purpose of the space program and how we look at it, I think quite often these days we hear too much, at least too much for my way of thinking, about the space race. It seems that in the papers it's always all the questions and all the discussion is always who is ahead of whom here in the space race and who's doing what and who's going to get where first. Well, we're not unaware of the political implications of the space race, so-called, of course. And we certainly plan to do everything we can to show that we have a great technological base that is moving ahead in the States. But, I, but to me, this whole thing about the space race is sort of out of context. I think that a hundred years from now, people will look back and may not even remember there was a space race at this particular time, but I think they will very definitely remember that this was the time that we were fortunate enough to be alive and see the beginning of all this big exploration that's going on and starting right now. And that, to me, is the real purpose of the whole space program, is exploration. It's research and exploration of the highest order. And I like to look at it that way rather than, than dwell on the space race aspects. I don't think we can pinpoint an X number dollars benefit right now from so many dollars spent any more than we could in any other exploration, an exploration of the West in our own country, in the States, or an exploration of the South Pole, or any other research that is conducted. But I think if there's one thing all of us, and particularly a group like this I'm sure would agree on, it's that money spent on research and exploration, while we can't always see the value of it at the outset, seems to always have a value in the long run far beyond anything we, we usually ever foresee at the outset. And that to me is, is really the, what probably the main benefits of our space program will be in the future be some things that we don't even foresee now that occur in this exploration. Well, if you're given a, 
the task of getting information from space and exploring this area, how do you go about it? Well, most of you are, are familiar with varying degrees with our program, I expect, so I'll just touch on these very briefly. We send out probes, of course, first, the unmanned probes, to get information near space and near Earth and deep space both. Beyond that, you go into the orbiting observatories, OGO and OSO, the uh, orbiting geophysical laboratories and solar observatories, and we can put these, of course, around uh, any one of the, the uh, heavenly bodies. And this can send back telemetry information that we can, we can learn quite a bit from. Taking this information, we get into a category which we still get some information from, but are, are mainly of a useful nature, and these are the working satellites, like Telstar and Relay and Syncom, that can link various countries together. When we take information from all three of these programs, then it's about time for man to get in the act here. And we feel that at that time, when we've learned all we can with the probes and the unmanned vehicles, that man then has a very definite place in the program because man is the only one of our instruments who can really go out on an exploration and really perceive the new, analyze it right on the spot, make analysis of it, and relate it back what, to what is useful for him on earth. So we feel that man has a peculiar place in the program once we have rightly gotten all the information we can in advance by these other unmanned means. The status of our programs, of course, in the manned section of this that I am most familiar with and have worked in is about as follows. We're writing, we, through Project Mercury, we used it to determine what man's capabilities roughly were in space and that man did have a, an operational capability in space. And we feel that that was well proven with Project Mercury. So moving on then to Project Gemini and Apollo, we could change some of our de design philosophy. We no longer needed to make all completely automatic systems to guarantee that man would get back. We now can plug man into the loop and let him be part of his own destiny here. He can make the decisions and can use systems, can turn them on and off, and, and determine uh, to a large degree what happens during the mission. He now gives flexibility to it. Things don't all have to be programmed. Looking forward to Apollo, we needed information in advance of Project Apollo on how well we could conduct the rendezvous experiments in space that Project Apollo was going to be based on. And we also needed extended experience in weightlessness. And that's the main, those are the main two things to be determined on Project Gemini that's underway right now. The last flight, of course, lasted eight days, and that's longer than the Apollo mission is scheduled for for its first lunar landing. Project Apollo then will follow oh, the extended weightlessness, of course, and also the rendezvous uh, part of the project, which will be attempted really for the first major effort on that, uh, will come up on the next mission in just a few weeks with Wally Sharon, Tom Stafford. Looking forward to Project Apollo, the lunar landing, we need this rendezvous technique then to come off the lunar surface the way we have this programmed at the present time. Now actually what have we learned of scientific benefit from all the manned spacecraft so far? Well there's been some feedback of course, but I think in all honesty we'd have to say that, that to date in the manned program we have been mainly concerned with working out the problems of just man going into space and the spacecraft itself. And so it's been mainly working out transportation problems, if you want to look at it that way, to date. 
Now, sure, we have put a lot of, of uh, scientific experiments on board, quite a number, and we'll have a slide here in a little while that will show some of those. But mainly, we've been working out other problems here, getting ready for the real purpose, which is exploration, which is just getting ready to start. And once we get started with that, of course, and get the more advanced project going, then we'll have far more scientific experiments aboard, and the, the program, I feel, will really start paying off then. I think right at this instant, right now, if you would, if you were to say, is the man program with what we have to date worth every cent that's been spent on it scientifically? Probably no. Probably is not. But this is like just getting ready to, to go about the major business. We've had our initial expenditure to get this capability developed, and we're looking forward to putting more experiments aboard as we go into the future here. I'd like to run through rather rapidly here this evening using the, the design that that we foresee right now and the one that's being built right now for Project Apollo and for the lunar landing. And if I can use the use this vehicle here, we'll try and, and uh, make this work through its whole lunar landing program. Uh, perhaps if I speak rather loudly here, you'll forgive me, I'll try and do this so we can uh, keep these people informed here that are over in the other room for the overflow group here. They'll be out of communication if I don't. But... Uh, they're not going to be able to see much of this anyway. <laughs> Maybe I can bring this up here on the podium. To hold this out here on the side just a moment here, I don't know whether those in the back of the room will be able to see this or not, but down here by my right thumb, if you can see this little thing down here, uh, that's a man to scale at six feet. Uh, that's a... very big. <laughs> uh, this, this whole thing is some 362 feet in height. This thing has a weight of 6,100,000 pounds. It'll put a payload just in Earth orbit of about 240,000 pounds into a 100 nautical mile orbit. It'll put 90,000 pounds into escape orbit, escape trajectory from the Earth. First stage down at the bottom, the S1C stage, just the part down here at the bottom you see up to here, has a length of 138 feet and is 33 feet across. So that gives you some idea of the size of this whole thing. It has five of the new F-1 engines, which will develop a total of about seven and a half million pounds of thrust at liftoff. Your liftoff won't be very violent, you can tell. With a thrust of about seven and a half million, a weight of 6.1, you're going to lift off at, what would that be, about one and a quarter Gs, not over that, 1.2. Second stage, the S-2 stage, is about 82 feet long, has five of the J-2 engines. The first stage, of course, uses regular rocket propellant fuel, the regular old kerosene and locks that we've been using in the past. And the second, all the rest of the stages, though, use the liquid hydrogen and locks uh, for each of the other stages. The third stage gets up here and is our restartable stage, the S-4B stage up here, and is one that will be carried into Earth orbit. And that S-4B stage still has a thrust to it of about 200,000 pounds from a single J-22 engine. Now, if we run through a mission with this thing very rapidly here, as we go up, of course, as each tank, each unit burns out, you don't want to carry that additional weight along, so you dump that off. And we jettison our first stage here after launch, and while we're still down pretty well into the atmosphere. Second stage fires up, takes us pretty well up out of the atmosphere, and at that time, you no longer need the escape rocket up here, which is put on here in case of emergency to pull the... the command module with the three astronauts aboard to pull it away in case there is an emergency with the, the booster down here. 
if there was any catastrophe started down here and any of this fuel got uncontrolled and started blowing up, you can imagine what a mess this would be up and down the pile very rapidly. So you need a method of getting the pilots off here very rapidly. We've had experience with this type system in Mercury, and uh, this is the design that's being tested now at White Sands, New Mexico. Tests have been very successful. And so this, as you get up out of the atmosphere, though, you no longer need the escape rocket. So that then is jettisoned, too. You'll find as we go through this thing, we throw an awful lot of junk away during the extent of this mission here, but that's sort of the name of the game. As we go on up then and take go pretty well out of the atmosphere, then the second stage is jettisoned, and the S-4B stage then lights up and is the final stage that takes us into Earth orbit. Now, with this, this section here is what will actually go into Earth orbit. The S-4B stage and the instrument package on, on top here. This section inside of fairing, this conical section in here, has inside of it the lunar excursion module, which is stored in this area. On up here, then, is the service module and the command module with the three pilots in up here, three astronauts in this area. Now, as you go away from the Earth, then, you, you go ahead... Well, as you're in Earth orbit, you make the final measurements determining exactly what your track and angle should be for thrusting away from Earth, position the spacecraft properly, fire up the engine again, and away you go on a translunar trajectory. Now, after you get out on this translunar trajectory and are carefully monitored all the way, you can make corrections, too, make mid-course corrections on the way out if you need to with this same J-4 vehicle. Now, before you jettison it, though, and throw it away, you come out off... You bring the command and service module out. The pilots will fly this out away from the spacecraft. This fairing, then, is jettisoned. And this exposes the lunar excursion module back in here. They've flown out like this. They turn this spacecraft around, come back, and plug into the lunar excursion module, still stabilized on this S-4 section. And at that time, then, you jettison the S-4 section here, throw it away, Again, we got more junk. <laughs> you throw it away, and this then will be the vehicle that will go on, will be captured by the, the moon's gravity, the lunar gravisphere, and go on into lunar orbit. This then is the, the actual lunar landing vehicle over here, the command module and service module that are hooked into it here. Of course, as you come out toward the moon, you reach a point of, of equigravity out here, equal gravity. Uh, you're actually slowing up as you reach that point, and as you're captured by the lunar gravity, then you start falling toward the moon. And as you do that, you must uh, slow down so that you'll be fully captured by the lunar gravity so that you can set up a circular orbit around the moon, or you might well go on around and start back toward Earth again, loop around the moon and, and start back around. So as we approach the lunar surface, then this engine would be fired up and slow down so that you're captured in a circuit, approximately a circular orbit around the lunar surface. When this is all worked out and everything looks good, two of the astronauts will transfer then over into the lunar excursion module through the hatches here at the mating point, and the one pilot, one astronaut, will remain in the command module to monitor all its systems while it remains in lunar orbit, and the spacecraft then are detached. So this then leaves the command and service module circling the moon. The two other astronauts in the lunar excursion module, the bug as we call it, for obvious reasons of the way it looks, uh, goes ahead, circles the moon, picks his landing spot, makes his deceleration with the engine here, comes down and lands on the lunar surface.
Now this is a gentle touchdown we trust and uh, everything is in good shape. They climb out, make their observations on the lunar surface, radiation studies, get samples, and when they are ready then have performed everything they're supposed to do on the mission, they get back in the in this in the bug and they then use this lower half, the silver half here, as their own little lunar launch stand. It becomes their own little Cape Kennedy, so to speak, here. They are in the upper part and it lifts off, leaving it on the lunar leaving the launch stand on the lunar surface, and this comes up then to rendezvous with the command module in lunar orbit. Now back to the command module again. Here we have the other man still up here orbiting the moon. They come back up again, rendezvous, transfer the two pilots back into the command module, uh, then jettison the command, jettison the lunar excursion module, and it probably remains in lunar orbit or crashes on the lunar surface. This then puts all three of the astronauts back in the command module, ready to go back to Earth. After the proper computations both on board and from Earth have been made, they go ahead and, and accelerate and do what they call a trans-Earth burn, which starts back toward the, the Earth's surface. Corrections can be made once again with this vehicle on the way back to assure its proper uh, alignment with the re-entry corridor, which is a very important part of this re-entry procedure. If you come in too steep into the Earth's atmosphere, you burn up just like a meteor coming in. If you come in too shallow, you skip off the Earth's atmosphere and go back out in space again. So uh, both of these are considered undesirable. So, so coming back, you... You uh, must make certain that you have all the guidance worked out be, to get you right into this 40-mile re-entry corridor. When you're certain all computations show that you are well within that corridor, then this is the last thing we throw away. You throw away the, the, the service module, and this then is what comes back to Earth out of this whole pile here that we started with. <laughs> Three astronauts aboard with their lunar samples and with all the observations they've been able to make. Now, those of you that are, most of you have our engineers, of course, or test pilots here or worked in this area, so you can follow with me through this. You can understand that the center of pressure, of course, on a, a regular circle like this, your center of pressure during reentry is certainly going to be right in the middle. But if you relocate your center of gravity uh, so many inches off of that, you're going to, of course, have a planing effect from this by a mislocation of your center of gravity, give you a planing effect which can be used, of course, to give you control coming back in as you plane off the upper part of the atmosphere. You could even roll clear upside down to plane to dig in more steeply if you wanted to. And that will be done. That will give a measure of steering depending on what angle you want to set this for coming back in. That's being tried out now in Project Gemini. It did not work during the last flight, primarily because there was a miscalculation on the ground, we're sorry to say. The onboard equipment on Gemini was working fine, but there was a wrong... Uh, wrong sequence was set in on the ground, which won't be repeated on the next flight. And uh, I don't know whether that fellow's still working with us or not. Anyway, it'll be corrected on the next flight, I'm sure, and, and we hope this rolling, this flying re-entry uh, will give better control. That's the idea, is instead of being able to set down in a footprint, say, that is 75 miles long by 30 miles across and being able to hit that area, we should be able to bring it down much more accurately than that and hit a, a fairly accurate landing. We want to do that, of course, looking forward to the day when we can can really fly these back in like we, we like to fly airplanes in and land them on the village airport, but it's uh, it's quite a ways to that, that particular day, we think. 
Well, as you come back in the command module, making this controlled re-entry, then you come down, drogue chutes come out to stabilize as you get well down in the atmosphere and approach sonic speed, just uh, well from about uh, Mach number one and a half down to about uh, oh just subsonic. You need a little stabilization right in that area, so drogue chute comes out, stay, helps stabilize you through that area, drags out the main chute, and you go ahead and make a water landing. So that runs us very rapidly through the uh, through an Apollo mission. Now if we could bring the projection screen back down here, we could start the second series of slides that run through sort of an artist's projection of what they foresee as this, this mission may look like as you, you go along looking at it from the outside. I wouldn't guarantee the authenticity of all of this, but it's, uh, it's at least an artist's conception of what it may look like. This is beginning to look a little bit like space itself up here. We have junk all over the place. Okay, this shows a little bit about the comparative size, comparative uh, number of people and size of the spacecraft. This is Mercury on top up here, of course, one pilot, two pilots in Gemini down here, and three in Apollo over on the left side. Now, this shows roughly the time that will be taken in each phase of the mission. We see about one to four and a half hours in Earth orbit for proper computation starting out. Translunar burn in here, about two and a half to three days on the way to the moon in lunar orbit. Uh, probably just a few hours on the lunar surface starting out, about three and a half to four and a half days coming back and re-entry and landing on the Earth. Minimum duration time, minimum time for any lunar mission appears right now to be about six and a half days. During the last flight, of course, the time of weightlessness, time of the mission was about eight days, and the fellows Pete and Gordo both came through in good shape, so it appears now that we're, we're well within pilot endurance and tolerance for the lunar mission, at least for the ones with a short stay on the lunar surface. Maximum duration time that is scheduled right now for any of the Apollo flights would be 14 days. And we will have a Gemini flight later on that is programmed for 14 days to show that this will be safe before we go on with Apollo. This is an artist's conception of the vertical assembly building at the Cape, which the whole vehicle, all 362 feet of it, on its transporting unit can be wheeled into this building which has the biggest cube of any building in the world that anyone seems to know about. Service structure beside the launch vehicle, and this whole works moves on this giant transporter at the bottom there that has treads and tracks on it. That, that's almost an unbelievable vehicle. It's in existence now. I've ridden on it while it was moving down there at the Cape. It travels about one miles an hour, one, mi one mile an hour. Uh, on the four-mile trip down to the launch pad from this vertical assembly building back over on Merritt Island behind the Cape. <coughs> the vehicle will be assembled and will be moved to its launch position like this, in a vertical position, after its checkout in the assembly building here. These Caterpillar tractor treads that you see down here, these duels have about 24 or 25 plates that make up each one of those treads, and each one of those plates weighs one ton. This whole thing weighs 5,000 tons, just the transport unit down there at the bottom. It's about the same as, uh, I think I saw a figure some PAO man made up to help explain this. It's about the same as two American destroyers, I think they said, the weight of it. Maybe some of the, anyone here from the Admiralty, maybe they can correct me on the weight of a destroyer. <laughs> 
One of the surprising things about that vehicle, just, just to make another comment on it here from a pilot control standpoint, some of you would appreciate, I, when I went up in the thing, it was underway and traveling along about one mile an hour and clanking along very slowly and under careful control, and I expected to see something like the big wheel of a ship up here to guide this thing down the road. The little pencil controller, about as big as your little finger. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he sits up and guides this thing just by tweaking this little pencil controller. There's uh, quite a surprise. Well, this shows the people in the control center making some of the final checks here, getting ready for a mission. This shows the astronauts getting on board here, and I sort of have a very strong doubt that at this point any astronaut's going to stop to check with this character with a clipboard here. But <laughs> This shows the launch as the artist sees it here, and I think there'll probably be at least that much smoke and fire around, probably a little bit more. This next one gives a little different view of the whole thing as we get underway. Should be a very gentle launch, should be about the same as those we've been experiencing so far, about maybe one, oh, 1.1 to 1.25 Gs at liftoff, just enough that you can, can well discern liftoff. Uh, time of liftoff as we've had on Atlas and Gemini so far, there's some resonance, some vibration, uh, but nothing very excessive at all. It's funny how many people uh, out, not, not a group like this, but how many other people in just a regular public audience have, the, uh, have seen so many TV shows of a liftoff on, on uh, the space program that they, they have the idea that every launch is one in which you get all set in position here and then you're completely flattened into the space ground <laughs> like this during launch and sometime later you're in orbit and so everyone re comes back to consciousness again and you shake your head and everyone says, gee, that was some launch or something. <laughs> it's not that way at all going into uh, starting out off the pad. It's a very gentle liftoff on a couple of the flights so far. In fact, the fellows haven't even been positive exactly at the second that the thing lift off the, lifted off the pad. Uh, I was aware when mine was underway because on the Atlas, when the hold down clamps are pulled back, uh, it gives a slight surge at that time as you come up off the pad, and there wasn't any doubt about it that I was underway. I could feel the resonance of the engines, of course, and I imagine it'll probably be the same on the, the Saturn once it's underway. This shows staging, the first stage dropping off back here. Second stage is fired up. The escape uh, tower is still on over here and should be jettisoned shortly, just about this, a little after this time. Second stage, and the S-4B has fired up. The S-4B is what will drive it on into Earth orbit. These stages that are dropping off here do not have orbital speed, of course, will drop back in the atmosphere and into the water. This shows a delay period while we're in Earth orbit. Uh, computations being made, radar data is being checked, both on board and on the Cape, and from the whole network, as far as that goes, to determine exactly what the trajectory should be for launch on, for the translunar burn. And here we go on the translunar burn here, going up to escape velocity. Now this shows roughly how the equipment is put in. The escape tower at this point would be off of the spacecraft instead of the way it's shown over here. The yellow part there is the command module, which would have the three astronauts aboard. This section back in here that's red with the engine on the back here will be the service module as the, uh, a lot of the equipment in there and the, uh, the engine in here and all the tankage for it up in the service module. This shows how the lunar excursion module, or the bug, is once again back inside this conical section before you go on back on the S-4B stage here. 
This shows the turnaround maneuver I went through a little while ago. Here we can see the bug, the module back here in, in the stabilized S4B stage while the command and service module are taken out, turned around, and the only thing we lack off that end picture now is for that whole thing to drive back in here and hook up right here with the lunar excursion module. And here we see it has done that. We now jettison the S4B stage, and that vehicle you see on the right then, ungainly as it looks, is what goes ahead and into the into lunar orbit. It shows the two astronauts that are going onto the lunar surface transferring, and that uh, someone usually asks uh, one of us when when this is being discussed as to uh, uh, isn't there going to be a big fight right at this point in the mission? <laughs> I think probably this will all be determined well in advance of the mission as to exactly who's going to do what there. Now this shows the turnaround maneuver, or not turnaround maneuver, but the thrusting maneuver of the service module here so that the whole works is captured in lunar orbit. This then shows the roughly the trajectories that will be gone through during the approach to the lunar surface and the lunar landing. This shows a very fanciful view of, <laughs> I guess it's an astronaut standing on the lunar surface. We haven't quite figured out exactly what he's looking at in his hand there, but I guess it must be something very important. Uh, he evidently is looking at some of the lunar dust or something because it appears to be trickling down here away from his hand anyway, and he's making some sort of, of uh, possibly an ultraviolet study of it or something of that nature. There will be a number of samples brought back, of course, and studies can be made on right at that particular time. All the astronauts in training now are being trained, uh, given quite a bit of geologic training, and uh, we'll have ways of making a number of studies right on the lunar surface, as well as bringing samples back for study here on Earth. Now this shows what liftoff might look like from above it on the lunar surface, leaving the, the little self-carried sort of do-it-yourself launch pad here. And this would be the, the two astronauts in the excursion module then coming back up for rendezvous with the command module, which has remained in orbit. This shows roughly the way it looks in mock-up stage at Grumman back some time ago. They're actually well ahead of this with hardware at the present time. It shows what a plywood mock-up looked like of this thing at Grumman to give you some idea of the size of it and the hatch size and, and uh, all ladders, how the uh, legs articulate here and so on. This was a pretty rough mock-up, but I thought it was uh, of some information because of size here. This shows the rendezvous maneuver being completed in lunar orbit, transfer of the astronauts back into the command module. This then would be the beginning of the trans-Earth burn, starting back with all three aboard. The sequence coming back, any mid-course corrections that had to be made to get captured in the 40-mile re-entry corridor. Once that's assured, the separation of the command and service modules, re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere, the going through the high heat, Time, the drogue, the main chute, and on down to landing. Shows the 40-mile corridor a little better here. Final correction tracking before that jettison maneuver can be done out here by radar tracking during the early stages of re-entry. This shows that separation prior to re-entry. And this would indicate some of the maneuvering capability as we re-enter the atmosphere. Now this is a little bit too fanciful here because this shows the small end forward even during part of this maneuvering. I'm sure nobody's going to get the small end forward at that particular time, just as you come into the high heat area. 
This shows the re-entry period, some of the high heat and the, the track back along the uh, trail you've just come from. This would show the final descent on the main chutes after the droves up here have pulled the main chutes out of the, the bags. They've inflated. And I can assure you that that is indeed a beautiful sight once you reach that point. That gives you a little feel, I think, for what uh, Fred's operation outside the spacecraft. I think things have come a long way in our manned space program, and rather rapidly, too. We've been very fortunate in not having any uh, difficulties that, that caused anybody to get hurt or anything like that, and we're very thankful for that and just hoping that uh, this keeps up. It's a little difficult to think back that just a few years ago, at the time of MR3, the Redstone flight that Al Shepard was on, his total flight time on that flight from launch to in the water was 15 minutes and 22 seconds. And his total weightless time on that thing was, I think, 5 minutes and 32 seconds or 35 seconds. And I remember sitting with Al planning his flight plan, and we had things programmed such as uh, 12 seconds for moving of control in a certain way and 22 seconds to look out the window and so many seconds to do this and that. And it's quite a contrast to the other day when, during the last flight of Gordo and Pete, we're sitting in the control center and discussing things with Chris Kraft at at uh, Houston at the new control center, and Chris wanted to do some things with the fuel cell experiment, and he's saying, well, now we're going to try them Tuesday, but if we don't get them done Tuesday, then we'll try them again on Thursday. <laughs> so, so things have progressed rather rapidly in a very few years when we've come along uh, with that rate of development. As far as the information we've gotten, we feel... We want to get this distributed around the world as much as possible, and that's one of the reasons I'm here. President Johnson, about two weeks ago, when we were in the White House with him before we started this trip, wanted us to do two things on these on our trip. One is to extend his best wishes to everyone and, and uh, send his felicitations and best regards, and also to help share as many of these pilot-eye-type view experiences as we can with, with interested scientific and university and school groups uh, wherever we go. So that's really the dual purpose in, in my being here. The international aspects of this program have been rather astounding and I don't think are, are too well known. Gil might be a better one to comment on this than myself. But just so far there have been some 140 international research associates in working with NASA centers in the United States on a, uh, for varying lengths of time. We've had 113 international graduate fellows in universities, all sponsored by NASA and paid for by NASA, and 225 foreign technical trainees at NASA centers in support of various type operations. In addition to formal exchanges, NASA and its centers are host to a whole host of foreign visitors every year, and up to July 1st of this year, there had been 12,500 visitors from 106 countries. These 12,500 visitors have been from 106 countries, and I can assure you from personal experience there's no holding back of information in the program. It's, it's, we want to get it out and distribute it and share it with everyone. Now, with that very brief run-through on the program, we try to cram too much into the program, I think, sometimes, but uh, with that very brief run-through, I'd like to open this up for a short session of question and answers here and see what uh, some of you are thinking about and see what uh, things we may not have made clear here. Anyone have any any questions here? Yes. 
the extent to which the extent simulators played in our program. One of the things we wanted to determine from Project Mercury was how accurate a simulation we could get and what part it played. And I think we found out that it, it's a very, very valuable part. You cannot simulate weightlessness, of course, except in a, go in a parabolic airplane flight where you come up, just push over enough to float out of the seat or out of the up in the cabin and simulate weightlessness like that. But that's for a limited period of time of 30 to 35 to 40 seconds of that order of that magnitude. But uh, you can't simulate that with any simulator we have, of course. But as far as operation of systems and what happens when certain systems fail and they're cross-referenced to other systems, we have found a very, very close likeness to the simulations. And uh, that's the reason we've gone into such an extensive simulator program on Project Gemini and on Project Apollo, where you can run all types of missions and induce all types of failures. Uh, you can do, do a wonderful job in that area. You can't go ahead and simulate the whole mission, of course, but uh, we, we simulate the whole mission, but you can't simulate weight. We've gone ahead and kept up with our high-performance aircraft flying all the time because this was about the nearest thing you could do and on a continuing basis as far as reaction time and things like that went. But we have found the simulators very valuable. Uh, some of the speeds and things like that as you look out the window, you, there's no way you can really simulate this and give the same feeling. You're at a speed in orbit that the orbits we've been using so far of about five miles per second, but you don't have this feeling of speed. I'm sure that many of you coming over here this evening felt more speed in your automobiles coming along than you did than we did in orbit depending on how you drove over here of course <laughs> but uh, your reference to speed of course as some of you as test pilots know is is uh, the angular change as you go by something is what gives you a, a sense of speed and from orbit I think your your angular change as you go by a point on the earth is about the same as your angular speed change in a jet aircraft say at 0.8 or 85 Mach number at say 40,000 feet or something of that order. So you have about the same sensation of speed as you do looking down at the ground from that altitude. Has there been any experience with the Bell Lunar Landing Trainer? Yes, it's being worked on now. Has actually had some flights out on the out at Edwards Air Force Base on the west coast near the west coast. Uh, it's still being worked on now though, and it's not in full daily use are not being used extensively yet. That's a good simulator. For those of you who are not uh, too familiar with it, it takes this lunar excursion module. The moon has one-sixth gravity of the Earth. So what this does is takes a, a vehicle, puts a jet engine under here that lifts the whole thing up and gives it, takes away, it takes up five-sixths of the Earth's gravity by its lifting power then you have your, your control system set up here so that then on top of that five-sixths reduction of the Earth's gravity, you then impose the control system that you normally would have on the lunar landing vehicle and can maneuver around and get approximately the same control response you'll have for a lunar landing. That's a simplified explanation, but that's roughly what it does. It's a pretty ingenious device, actually, and we hope to have a lot of good use out of it. Oh, yes. Yes. This is all very carefully calculated as to amount of fuel aboard, of course, and well, that's the understatement of the week. This is very carefully controlled. You have so many minutes, of course, so many minutes of operation here, and, and uh, 
We weren't quite happy with the amount of amount of thrust available. And you have some left over for corrections and, and missed guidance, corrections for you have the worst case figured in all the way through here and enough fuel to compensate for it. Yes, there was a question. Doing lunar landing from particles, meteorites. Question on the microphone of this whole thing. Uh, all of our studies and the best information we can get, from, probably some of you have done some studies in this same area. Uh, all of our studies and the information our people have been able to get seems to indicate that there is no appreciable danger from this, that the danger is small enough that, that it's really not worth worrying about. Now, this is an area that needs more information. And a lot of that information is being gained right now by the Pegasus, uh, which is in orbit now, has uh, arms out about 96 feet and panels some 8 or 10 feet across, and I don't know the exact area of this, but that's the main purpose of it, is to measure uh, meteorite and micrometeorite penetration. It's sending back information all the time, and they're getting a lot of dope from it that will be a, more definitive than anything we've had available so far. But all the studies to date seem to indicate that this is not an area uh, worth worrying about. The, the chances of running into anything of sufficient size to cause trouble are extremely small. Uh, of course, if you happen to run into one, well, that's uh, it's a bad day all the way around. But the chances of this happening are not are very, very small. Yes. Yes. Oh, I think a weight consideration uh, that you can throw away all the mechanism required to escape. Uh, where on the Gemini, it was uh, we tried out the seats, and you carry those along, and those are weight all the time. You've got to carry them all the way through. This is undesirable from a weight standpoint. I think we're we're probably better off going back to the uh, escape tower. This was the main reason for it. Yes. You think rendezvous and docking is going to be well? Uh, we're going to work it out. I think it, it'll. I think it'll require a little bit of uh, working on to get some of this down cold. Because uh, a lot of times you have to do just exactly the opposite of what looks natural to, to a normal pilot, as you're probably aware by the nature of your question. Uh, if you go into a higher speed condition, you assume a higher orbit, of course. And this means if you're, say you're in a higher orbit here, and in an airplane, say you're looking out ahead of you here, and uh, you want to rendezvous on this airplane that's out ahead of you here and a little bit lower, well, you just very simple. You just push over and you pick up speed and you drop down and, and you join up with him. Well, in orbital flight now, this is a completely different proposition. If you try and speed up to come up here, all you're going to do is go up and assume a higher orbit. So the thing to do is do just the opposite of what you normally would do. You turn around and slow down and wait about half an orbit and you hope that then that you have come down, your orbit has come down and when you're around here on the far side, then you'll be closer to this man. <laughs> So it's a completely different problem, and one that is does not require the, the normal pilot's eye view of things until you get in very close. Now, we feel that once you get in within a couple of hundred feet of this thing, then you can, what we call, eyeball it in. You, you look at him, and you go ahead and thrust on over here, and the amount of thrust required is, is tolerable for making a regular pilot-type rendezvous at the shorter distances. But for the bigger distances now, when you see this thing off in the distance, that you have to do just about the opposite of what you consider normal as long as you're, you're uh, uh, co-planar here. 
Now, if you if you're off to the side, that's something different. Then you have to come over here and, and uh, become coplanar before you can go ahead and make the other maneuver. So it becomes rather complicated on rendezvous. And this is something that, for the greater distances, you're going to need onboard computation to help you out. You know exactly how much delta v or change of thrust here, change of speed to put in to get what result you think you need around here on the far side. It's a little difficult to sit there and look at this thing you want to rendezvous on and, and put a squirt in here to give you that correction and then have to wait half an orbit to see whether it worked. But that's exactly the situation you have to, you're, you're faced with. So it's not the, for those of you that are pilots, it's not the normal type rendezvous, that's for sure. Yes. Back in the middle right here. Uh, so far on Project Apollo, Parachute landing will be the first ones used. Now, we are working on landing systems on follow-on, of course, that, like the folding para wing and, and that type of stuff, that would enable you to come back down on land. So far, it appears that the water landing has been the best so far and will be at least through the first stages of Project Apollo. There are several reasons for this. One, we, we take off over the water anyway, and if you abort early in the mission, you have to have a water landing capability. So we want that capability anyhow. Now. Beyond that, uh, we have this large footprint that we land, uh, we call it a footprint on land here that was some uh, number of miles long and, and miles wide, 70, say, by 30 miles, uh, big elliptical pattern that will be the area of expected landing. Now, in the United States, there just are no areas like that, of that size, that don't also have in that area uh, rocks and houses and railroads and light lines and and the things like this that you might come down in. We can't control it accurately enough yet on landing that we can guarantee that you won't hit an area that might cause someone some trouble. And uh, the astronaut's inside trouble, too. So uh, until the time that we can more accurately control it to a specific point on the ground as you come down, I think we'll probably stick with water landing, although this is being worked on, and, and we would like to fly it back in like we've flown airplanes back in before, of course, and have a controlled landing. Uh, water landing is, is something, too, that you know what to prepare for. Water is water wherever you're going to run into it. With some two-thirds of the Earth's surface covered by water, uh, this means your chances of, if you have an emergency of coming down someplace, uh, your chances are better if you have prepared for a water landing and can come down on a water surface. It does complicate recovery procedures, of course. You have to have a whole half a Navy out there to... to uh, recover you and to take care of all contingencies, so it is a problem, but it looks so far as though this is the safest way to do it, at least for now. Yes. It looks now from all the studies we have that, that radiation dangers can be taken care of in two ways. One, uh, the radiation of the Van Allen belts, say, can be, are quite tolerable as long as you don't sit in the Van Allen belts and go ahead and continue orbit in that area. As long as you go ahead and, and accelerate and go on out through them and get on through them at approximating uh, right angle penetration to this and get right on through, uh, this is a quite quite tolerable level of radiation. Now, uh, beyond that, as far as solar flares goes, as you may be or probably aware, uh, these are very cyclic, cyclic in nature and uh, can be fairly well predicted. Once in a while one comes up that's out of its proper sequence uh, when, it, when there's a period of, of low solar activity uh, which is very predictable. Once in a while, one will flare up in that period, but by and large, they're they're rather predictable. And the current uh, plan is to launch during a period of low solar activity. Monitor this very closely because solar flares, of course, can be observed, and harmful radiation doesn't normally uh, 
get to us here, say, for, uh, what is it, one, one and a half days or two days after observation of the solar flare. So it looks as though these two things, one, going through known radiation areas uh, rapidly, as rapidly as possible, two, making these launches, at least the first ones, in a period of very low solar activity and keeping very close watch during flight uh, from observatories here to make sure of what solar activity is underway will be adequate to protect the astronauts during the mission. And we have one more here just to see if there's any... Yes. Colonel, have the three men been chosen or have they volunteered? Have the three men been? No, not yet. I think there'll be a number of flights yet before anyone is chosen for this. They'll be selected uh, pretty well ahead of time, of course, but no one has been chosen this far ahead. Uh, we still think that uh, if all goes well, we'll get the flight off by 1970, and uh, unless there is some uh, large failure in the meantime here that we all hope does not occur, of course. Uh, we're, everyone is working just as hard as they possibly can to uh, keep these keep the safety record that we've had going. It has been a rather remarkable one. I think I would have bet against it running this far if we had started early in the program, of course, if we'd made any bets on it. But there has been any... All the systems that are essential have backup systems to them. We've gone through the most complete failure analysis that I ever have seen run on anything. I've been around the aircraft business for some number of years, and I never have seen anything like the, the failure analyses that we have run on this program. And every place there's been a single point failure that could cause fatality or could cause a, a, a mission termination that would be fatal, you've backed it up either with an alternate means of the pilot backing it up or an alternate automatic system if this is if the situation is time critical. For instance, during launch, if you have a blow-up starts there, you don't have much time up ahead of this thing. You can't see what's going on. You couldn't sense it until the fire came up past you, and that would be a little bit late. So... Uh, at this, during that time, you have a sensing system on board that senses this for you. Would shut down the engines, operate the ejection system because you couldn't you couldn't react that fast. Guidance is the same way. These guidance things have to be done very rapidly in the proper sequence, and the pilot's reaction time just isn't that good. So things that are time critical like this, you do have programmed and are automatic. Other things that are not that time critical, uh, you don't have systems for like that. If the pilot can manually back it up. The pilot still monitors all these systems, however, to make sure that they're operating okay, and even in the case of the abort system, he has an override for it, so it's what we've called the chicken switch in the past, so that in case he thinks something isn't going right and he wants to terminate the mission himself. <laughs> we used to have this on Mercury over on the left side, and it was even labeled the chicken switch, in case, you, in case you'd had enough and wanted to stop the whole mission wherever you were during launch. All you had to do was push in on the button on the top and throw that handle outboard, and that shut down the engines, operated the, to release the capsule, fired the escape rocket, and away you went. But uh, we fortunately never had to use that, and hope we never do have to. So, uh, I'm sorry, our, our visit here to England is so, so short. Uh, we have quite a trip ahead of us here. We uh, have been to Germany, to several places there, back over here. We were up to Hull. Uh, night before last, and uh, talked to a group last night, and again tonight we go from here to Holland, down to Italy, uh, to Spain, to Portugal, and then back home if we're able. So uh, we're having a very good time, though, and it's the first time that Annie and I have ever had a chance to visit, either in England or in, in Europe, so we're getting quite a, a wide view of things, even though we don't have too much time at any one spot, we know where we want to 
come back to and, and see more one of these days. And I can assure you that we'll be back here one of these days in some capacity or other when we spend a little bit more time. Thank you very much for your attention here, and I hope to see you all in the future. Thanks a lot. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd just like to let Colonel Glenn know how very much we appreciate his going out of his way to come over and give us this lecture. He's obviously had a very tough timetable, and uh, he's given us an admirable lecture. His, our congratulations to him on the lecture and the major contribution he's made in the conquest of space. Uh, I think also we'd like to give our thanks through him to President Johnson for giving the message of good wishes, and we hope that this sort of collaboration will continue in the future. It's been most illuminating for us to get an astronaut, astronaut's eye view of uh, some of the experiences that uh, you have had already. And we'd also like to wish NASA a very happy 7th birthday. Thank you. Well, uh, we all ought to have a party, so. <laughs> Perhaps we could just show our appreciation of Colonel Glenn's lecture.